Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here at Westminster and moderator of these forums. Voices of conscience regarding key issues in our society. Those voices are out there and we do our very best to bring them here seven or eight times a year to address these noontime forums. We look for people who know what they're talking about, who care deeply about it, who are in a position to make a difference, and who can challenge us to think and to act. Their voices are heard not only by those assembled here in the sanctuary on a given Thursday noon, but by those listening over Minnesota Public Radio as well, American Public Radio nationwide, and Minneapolis Television Network Station 32. The issue today is the prison system in this country, an issue that we have not addressed in any of these forums over the past nine years that we've been at it. It's high time, given the fact not least of all that the issue has been forced to the surface in the current political campaigns. The voice today is that of J. Michael Quinlan, director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. He was appointed to that post July 1, 1987. He is a career public administrator in the Department of Justice and fifth director of the Bureau since its establishment in 1930. The Federal Bureau of Prisons is responsible for the confinement of over 44,000 people. As director, Mr. Quinlan oversees the operations of 47 federal institutions and five regional offices located throughout the United States. From 1978 to 1980, he was superintendent of the federal prison camp, Elgin Air Force Base, Florida. From 1980 to 85, he was warden at the federal correctional institution, Otisville, New York. Before asking him to step to the podium, let me announce that his appearance here today is in tandem with Dialogue 88, a week-long gathering here in Minneapolis of some 2,000 men and women from across the country and indeed from some foreign countries who are involved in ministry in specialized settings, such as chaplains and pastoral counselors, among others. Mr. Quinlan's topic today is Corrections. What should society expect? Welcome, Mr. Quinlan. Introduction. It's a great uh, privilege and pleasure for me to be here today. As I reviewed the list of others who have had a similar opportunity, I was impressed with the breadth and depth of exposure that this forum provides for established as well as emerging ideas in our society. I'm also always happy to come to Minnesota because it's the home of three of our federal institutions, the Federal Prison Camp in Duluth, the Federal Correctional Institution in Sandstone, and the recently opened Federal Medical Center in Rochester. It's also the state of one of the most respected state correctional systems, headed by Orville Pung. 
And it's also uh, the home, the adopted home of uh, my predecessor, uh, the former director of the Bureau of Prisons, Norman Carlson, who served in the position of director from 1970 to 1987. It's perhaps fitting, then, that the role of prisons in society is before us today. Because prisons are well established, and yet at the same time, there is a new emerging awareness in our society of the pivotal role they play in the complex interactions within our criminal justice system. It is in this context that the topic I have selected today becomes critical. What indeed should society expect from this centuries-old institution of corrections. But first, I think that some context will be helpful. The evolution of the penitentiary concept has swung through cycles of so-called conservatism and liberalism to the point where practitioners can almost count on seeing most of that spectrum at some point in their careers. These philosophical shifts were accompanied by reliance on theories of the efficacy of solitary confinement, the medical model which prescribed treatment for criminality, rehabilitation in the social work context, and the current incapacitation mode. We presently are either in or moving out of this latter category depending on your point of view. As I will discuss later, I believe this flux has, in a way, been suspended in a relatively conservative position, suspended because of the growing realization of the costs of the overcrowding which is now building in our prisons, but still in a relatively conservative posture, as the populace of this country continues to be concerned about the impact of crime, particularly drugs and violence, on their lives. Far back in America's cultural experience, though, there was no swinging of the pendulum. Prison was a very difficult and remote place, out of sight, out of mind, probably never applied more accurately than it did in the case of early correctional operations. Little was known about prison life for the first 150 or 175 years of our nation's history, except from those who worked there or who had been incarcerated. And neither of these parties had any investment in publicizing what went on behind the walls even if there was anyone who was interested in learning. But recent years have changed that. There are complex explanations for this shift, but I believe the two key events serve to concentrate a great deal of attention on corrections and sensitize even more of our public to the importance of prison management. One of those events was the Attica uprising. At 1971, in Attica, New York, the uprising alerted an entire generation of Americans that there was a tremendous wellspring of emotion and violence behind some prison walls. It also reminded us that inmates are attuned to what goes on in the outside world and are fully capable of exploiting the media and other sectors of the free world to their advantage. For the duration of that siege, the world followed events through television in a way that had not heretofore been possible. The media, and particularly the role of television, was a critical one. In a dramatic paradigm, it made prisons real and the, for the first time to a whole generation in our society. And I suspect that a second focal event in the 20th century corrections in this country will eventually be acknowledged in the form of the Cuban detainee uprisings in Oakdale, Louisiana and Atlanta, Georgia. While the full complexity of those uprisings can probably never be documented, the extensive media coverage 
and its interaction with the events within the prisons fostered yet another of the public's developing insights into our prison system today, that prisons are no longer separate institutions of society. In fact, they are a very real part of society's ebb and flow, reflections in both staff and inmates, reflecting in both staff and inmates the events and values of the free world. I have mentioned in each of these vignettes the importance of the media. It is this common denominator in combination with the courts, as I will discuss shortly, which has significantly influenced the character of corrections as it functions in our society. Only after we see how the entire context of corrections has changed in this nation can we begin to make a realistic outline of what society can expect from corrections today. At Attica, inmates demanded and received media coverage of negotiations. We saw the posturing and rhetoric of inmates and the strained face of Commissioner Oswald as he sat at a makeshift bargaining table harangued by one inmate leader after another. At Atlanta, we know the inmates learned of the repatriation agreement from the media before staff had a chance to formulate their plans to deal with this unprecedented situation. We also know that throughout the ordeal, media accounts and misaccounts fueled the fears and passions of the detainees as they listened to the radio and watched TV from inside the prison at Atlanta. In fact, the media is one of the major reasons that corrections is no longer separate and apart and is emerging in our society to a new level of public interest and awareness. The ability of the media, and particularly television, to vividly portray major events in prisons and remove it from the abstract and imaginary has been a catalytic event in the last two decades. The future potential for television to correct societal myths about day-to-day -day prison life is immense. This flow of information about prisons to the media has also been mirrored by a similar flow of information to inmates about the free world. In the past, and I think we can reasonably apply that term in this case to the era prior to the 50s and 60s, inmates had relatively little contact with the outside world. Letters were heavily censored, and by that I mean censored, parts cut out, sometimes totally withheld. Newspapers and magazines were similarly truncated when objectionable content was found by prison staff. In the era before television, the few radio stations inmates could listen to were on a centrally controlled distribution system, monitored by staff in some cases. Visits were sharply limited, often restricted to immediate family on intervals as sparse as once a month. Phone calls were essentially non-existent. That was also a reflection of the fact that inmates were locked in their cells for large portions of the day. This is past history of the most dated kind. Inmates are generally speaking no longer locked in their cells except at night or in the very highest security settings. Television is available freely. Inmates may own personal radios and in some prison systems, TVs. Magazines and newspapers are available in the institution library or commissary, and inmates may subscribe to almost any publication short of those which tell them how to make guns, bombs, or keys. Visiting is far more liberal as our correspondence regulations. Volunteer visitors are encouraged to visit those without families. Media and attorney-client mail and visits are essentially unregulated except for contraband inspections. 
Phones are available in most institutions on one basis or another. Truly, the world is open to the prison as it has never been before. In addition to the media and more open communications with the outside world in general, the second major factor, I believe, which should be mentioned is the emerging role of the courts and how they have shaped contemporary corrections. Beginning in the 1950s and continuing until now, the courts, and particularly the federal courts, have been ever more inclined to become involved in the management and oversight of prisons. In cases at every level, up to and including the Supreme Court, the judiciary has articulated limits on prison administrators' powers, which had previously been exercised with uh, their own discretion only, and unfortunately sometimes with indiscretion. Some of these judicially mandated changes were necessary and long overdue. Others were, in my view, overly broad. And yet the overall effect has, was to catalyze many systems into a more modern approach to prison management. The need for this kind of change was self-evident to anyone who could objectively look at many correctional systems in this country in the 1950s and 60s. But the impetus wasn't there within the correctional apparatus until the courts provided the necessary motivation. Interestingly, the courts also pushed open the prison door to the media even further during these years, reinforcing the public awareness of trends I've mentioned already. Inmates were permitted to correspond in an uncensored manner with the media. Interviews were permitted, which had been up unheard of in the past. In short, the interaction of these two complementary trends has served to keep corrections imprinted on the minds of the public as it has never been before. There are other reinforcing trends which have been important in making the public more aware of life behind the walls. Useful inmate programs like the Toastmasters, NAACP, United States JC chapters, and many cultural and religious groups in many prisons serve to more fully inform average citizens and even permit them to go regularly inside prisons. Inmate participation in sports programs and the increased reliance on of some systems on community volunteers, also, community volunteers also permit larger numbers of people to see inmates and institutions in a more realistic light. The increased use of community resources makes inmates real people to many more citizens and more importantly keeps inmates aware of the citizenry they must reintegrate with once returned from the prison. And so as we move toward the final decade of the 20th century, the public is more aware now than ever of what corrections really is. But we are working to accomplish much more with the media, to more comprehensively portray the day-to-day -day humane rigors of prison life and the caring, humane professionalism of staff. Corrections is not a static entity. We as professionals must deal daily with the impact of tremendously powerful forces in our society which act on our staff and inmates and on the legal and cultural climate in which we function. It is in this area which we can now examine what society can and cannot expect from corrections today. What society can and should expect above all else is that prisons will be able to keep the public safe by preventing inmates from escaping during the course of their legal sentences. If a judge decrees that a person requires confinement because they presumably present a threat of some sort to society, then society has every right to expect that they will be protected from that individual. 
That expectation must be tempered with the knowledge that imperfect men and women will make mistakes and that even the best designed system will fail occasionally. The corollary then to this expectation is that correctional professionals will use whatever state-of-the-art information, systems, and technologies as may be applicable in order to accomplish their public safety objectives. Next, in the coming decade, society can expect continued expansion of the correctional sector of our criminal justice system. Heightened enforcement efforts, determinate sentencing, the, abolu uh, the abolition of parole in some jurisdictions, new laws limiting good time credits that reduce sentences, and new laws on the books regarding drugs and habitual offenders, each of these elements contributes to the growth of the offender population and the need for additional prison space. To not expand the confinement options available to the courts is to make our arrests and courtroom expenditures futile. Let me use the Bureau of Prisons as an, as an example of this population growth. From a population of 42,900 on January 1 of this year, the Bureau now houses 45,000 inmates. Gauged against our current capacity of 28,500, this is 156% overcrowding. In calendar year 1987, we, had, we experienced a 5% population increase. As a further perspective on recent growth, the Bureau's population on January 1, 1981, was only 24,000. Current population levels represent an 87% increase in less than eight years. The raw numbers and the rate of increase that these figures represent signify one of the most dramatic population growth periods ever to confront the Bureau of Prisons. And most states are experiencing similar or greater growth rates. Nationwide, the Bureau of Justice Statistics reports a record of 606,000 inmates in custody with state populations growing at a 6.2% rate yearly. The incarceration rate is now 237 people per 100,000 U.S. residents, as opposed to 139 per 100,000 in 1980. Aggressive enforcement and prosecutorial activity appear to be major components of this increase in commitment activity. In addition, new federal sentencing guidelines went into effect on November 1, 1987. Their enactment was accompanied by a number of other changes, such as the abolition of parole in the federal system and a major reduction in good time credits available to inmates. The impact of the Sentencing Commission guidelines is expected to accentuate current trends through the imposition of lengthier sentences in some cases, the use of confinement in others, which formerly would have been candidates for probation, and of course, by the abolition of parole and most good time credits. The Bureau's calculations show the net effect of these changes and other demographic trends will be a minimum of 84,000 inmates by 1995. Society can expect that corrections will use the public's dollar wisely in meeting the indisputable confinement demands of the coming decade. Agencies everywhere are seeking cost-effective, multifaceted approaches to dealing with these coming population increases. The objectives of the Bureau of Prisons Construction Program are twofold, to keep pace with projected increases in the inmate population and to simultaneously reduce the level of overcrowding in the system as a whole. 
Additional site acquisition work is underway at a number of military bases and other locations, such as closed colleges, seminaries, and other similar sites, which have buildings and facilities suitable for correctional use or conversion. By using these secondary, less costly sites, we intend to be prepared to keep, to deal with the additional inmates sure to be committed in coming years. At the same time, you must expect to see more community options exercised. There simply is no way, financially or politically, that our nation can confine offenders at the rates projected in the future without relying on innovative and sometimes unconventional options. One particular interesting innovation is the, is the contract community correction center programs now being used in Detroit and Washington, D.C. It involves placing appropriately classified offenders for up to one year in a community facility where they can hold regular employment. However, they return to the facility each day for in-house programming rather than participating in community activity, activities in their off-the-job time. While in the program, inmates pay a percentage of their wages to offset the cost of the program and may be required to perform community service work. This type of correctional program is just one of many which it is hoped will be developed to assist the Bureau of Prisons in achieving a balanced response to the expected population increase. Another is electronic offender monitoring technologies, which are best thought of as supplements to home confinement and other intermediate sanctions. The costs of such a program are touted as ranging from $3 to $12 per day, as opposed to anywhere from $20 to $60 per day for traditional confinement. Technology and its benefits have a very real place in corrections, and society has the right to expect that modern technology will be used to streamline and make more efficient the day-to-day -day tasks of prison operation. This technology issue, while not unique to prisons, has a unique application in prisons. That is, the need to maintain an, an effective balance between the human side of management and the utilization of emerging technologies. This is something that will become increasingly difficult in the future as we rely more and more on technology in our culture. You can expect to continue to hear more about AIDS in prison. Perhaps no single non-political topic has been discussed more in this country in the past five years than this. The legal and ethical concerns which this disease presents for our staff are unprecedented. The balance between individual AIDS sufferers' rights and those of the non-infected individuals is difficult to strike. Nevertheless, we believe that a balanced approach is possible, one which favors provision of the least restrictive measures consistent with the orderly management of our institutions. Our new policies strive to achieve that difficult balance. You can expect that major litigation issues will continue to be raised and resolved in the courts regarding correctional practices and policies. Correctional case law is far from settled. The evolving standards of decency in our society drive a corresponding evolution in correctional standards. An example of the issues we had to deal with in the legal arena in just the last year include transfers to psychiatric hospitals, double bunking, regulations on publications, inmate marriage restrictions, inmate to inmate mail, inmate religious practices, medication practices for mentally ill pretrial detainees, high security housing for inmates with terrorist affiliations, and of course the drug-free workplace. Taken together, 
These are challenging expectations in a time of social change and increasingly constrained overall resources in government. There are, however, some things society cannot and should not expect of corrections. One thing society cannot expect is rehabilitation of criminal offenders in the classic sense of prescribing discrete treatment strategies which will somehow completely cure criminality. Moreover, most rehabilitation ideals are vague and frankly are not practical or useful in designing a correctional management system. Far more useful is the concept of providing programs and services which, when chosen freely by the inmates, offer the potential for positive behavioral change on their part. This philosophy isn't just a bureaucratic posture. The problems and real solutions of crime are deeply embedded in other, far stronger, character-holding institutions. The family, schools, church, and the workplace are the seedbeds of social, societally acceptable behavior. They also are the seedbeds of crime in many, if not most, cases. And it is there that the preemptive solutions to crime lie in the long run. Only after all of these institutions of society have failed does corrections receive the residual of offenders who society deems to require incarceration. There are those who argue that because the roots of crime are in the community, so are the solutions. This, of course, however, leads us to a massive difficulty in finding the balance between protecting the public and providing opportunities for offenders to reform their behavior. That dilemma is why I used the term preemptive a minute ago because the harsh reality of life is that unless intervention is early and effective, once criminal offenders reach the correctional portion of the criminal justice system, in almost every case, they are sol solidly committed to a system of values or patterns of behavior which support criminality. This pattern sets up a challenge that requires a partnership between corrections prof professionals and the community. Involvement of the community, for example, in volunteer programs or in advisory boards in our institutions is critical to, to normalize a prison environment, one that reflects the mainstream of positive social values to prisoners. Our staff are trained to project traditional values to prisoners, but community involvement serves greatly to strengthen and reinforce that effort. The inmates we see coming in our gates are people who have made personal choices about criminal activity which are not easily reduced to a common denominator. Those choices may be products of complex personal and societal interactions, but they are in almost every case deeply ingrained and highly personal. The correctional clientele we deal with is a diverse composite of difficult and sometimes highly dangerous individuals it is not reasonable to expect they will be amenable to any single prescription for change. Again, hope for the su successful reintegration of prisoners into society lies in the confluence of all the positive forces we can mobilize. Therefore, the partnership between corrections and the community is utmost in, in, in importance. So society's expectations, and I believe society's responsibility, in this area is reduced to involvement in correctional, in the correctional system's goal of providing a safe, humane place of confinement in which the judgments of the court can be carried out and providing the broadest possible set of programs and service options to inmates 
consistent with the need to protect the public, ensure the safety of staff and other inmates, and to the extent possible, facilitate the successful reintegration of offenders into the law-abiding mainstream of society. I would like to note in passing the ambivalence that society has about criminals, and that ambivalence is shared by the media. It contributes significantly to the way society views our e efforts. If a television network runs a program on one of our institutions, you can almost be certain that we will get calls or letters ranging from complaints that we treat the inmates too well in a country club setting, to the assertion that we are running the Western Hemisphere's division of the Gulag Archipelago. This ambivalence also contributes to a great deal of the confusion and resistance we often encountered about post-release programs for offenders, the location of new correctional institutions, and even society's view of, of prison work as a profession. This ambivalence underscores the media's responsibility to depict, to depict correctional programs more accurately as pursuing society's goals of humane incarceration, just desserts, and the successful reintegration of offenders into the, the community. These are issues about which society can be made more aware. These issues are important to keep in mind as the public, legislatures, and the judiciary and other criminal justice professionals examine ever more closely the job corrections is doing in this nation. In closing, society can expect corrections to keep the public safe, to expand in the next decade as it does so, to use the public's funds wisely, and to exercise prudent, cost-effective program and institutional options to do so. The public can also expect problems, litigation, and controversy from time to time in its prisons, as well as reflections of wider societal problems like drugs and AIDS. The community also can expect corrections professionals to engage in, in a meaningful dialogue as volunteers, as facilitators of offenders' reintegration into society. Corrections is no more static than our society. Were I to give this talk five years from now, I am certain that a number of core issues would remain, but I am just as certain that new areas of concern and new issues will emerge as we move into the 90s, areas in which our own expectations will require adjustment, as well as those of society. Today's session has been a challenge for me to prepare for. It has made me examine what we are doing as a correctional organization, how we fit into the criminal justice system as a whole, and how we fit into society. I hope that these comments will stimulate your thinking on these important subjects. Thank you very much. We, we take a moment now to permit those who must leave the auditorium to do so, also to allow uh, those of you who wish to pass questions to the aisle to do so, they'll be picked up promptly. Let me also remind the radio audience that uh, you may phone in your question to 332-3421, 332-3421. Let me remind the audience that we have that you've just heard uh, an in-depth statement by J. Michael Quinlan uh, on corrections, what should society expect? Mr. Quinlan is director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. At this moment, we do like to acknowledge and thank our co-sponsor, Maxfield Research Group Incorporated Real Estate Consultants.
Well, we'll, we'll begin to deal with questions. Sir, may I invite you to return to the podium? Uh, as the moderator, I'll take the liberty of, of launching the question period. Yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, I just happened to see this, this article that began thus. A Massachusetts inmate serving a life sentence for murder escapes while on furlough. Before he's apprehended, he commits another serious crime. The case fuels widespread criticism of the state's liberal furlough program and of the governor, whom many perceive to be soft on criminals. The governor is defeated in the subsequent election. The escaped conviction's name is not Willie Horton, but Joseph Sibolowski. The governor is not Michael Dukakis, but Francis Sargent, the Republican Mr. Dukakis defeated in his first bid for the governorship. The year is not 1988, but 1973. It would seem to suggest that uh, the question of furlough is not a Republican or a Democratic issue, but just an issue on its own ground. I think we would all be interested to hear your thoughts about furlough. Fine. First of all, at the federal level, furloughs have existed since 1965. Congress president uh, signed the bill that uh, Congress had passed allowing for fed federal furloughs. The federal furlough policy is uh, uh, implemented and, and acted upon very cautiously because it does represent a uh, program which allows prisoners to leave the confines of the institution for a short period of time. It was a program that was devised to allow prisoners who are close to release to reintegrate, to be more uh, normalized in their reacclimation to society. The programs have been very successful for the most part, although there are on occasion prisoners who fail to return and or uh, commit crimes while out on the furloughs. We, we feel that uh, if properly implemented and cautiously uh, maintained, that furloughs can provide an important program for prisoners who are soon to be released. At the federal level, you must be within two years of a firm release date, a parole date, or an, a, a sentence expiration date before you would become eligible for a furlough. Thank you. Is the death sentence still considered humane? The first question from the audience, the, the whole death sentence <clears throat> issue. Well, the, uh, the death sentence, uh, death penalty issue is one that is fraught with uh, emotions uh, on the pro and the con. Um, it's something that at the federal level has been not utilized for the past uh, 30 or so years, uh, although Congress uh, recently, as part of the uh, 1988 drug bill, has uh, put a section in there that would allow the death penalty for cer certain major narcotic offenders who commit murder in the, in the uh, performance of their crime. Uh, we also, in the Bureau of Prisons feel, because we have had some very serious uh, incidents where staff have been murdered by prisoners serving life sentences, uh, that since there seemed to be no reason for these prisoners not to murder, uh, that uh, when a prisoner murders a staff member, a, a death penalty is appropriate. I think in those uh, types of situations where law enforcement officers are involved or where serious uh, drug uh, uh, law violators uh, kill in, con in performing their uh, illegal acts that the death penalty is appropriate. Next question from the audience. Is mental health a problem in today's prisons and, and how is it handled? 
it certainly is a, a, a major concern. Uh, many of the uh, offenders that uh, you find in correctional institutions uh, do have a, a history of, of mental uh, disorder, although uh, we are able to deal uh, in, on a mainstream basis with the majority of the offenders through uh, counseling and other kinds of treatment modalities. We do have uh, specialized institutions for those offenders who are uh, suffering from the most severe types of mental disorder. Another question, what is being done to segregate minor offenders from hardened repeated criminals in the system? One of the uh, most important programs that the Bureau of Prisons developed uh, under Norm Carlson back in the 70s was the inmate classification system that we utilize. And that system allows us to uh, uh, classify inmates into six categories of institutions and keeping the offenders uh, of like background and, and character together uh, at, if they're uh, minor offenders at the lowest end of the spectrum and keeping the most dangerous offenders together at the highest end of the spectrum. So the classification system is effective in, in doing that, keeping the misdemeanors and, and other minor law violators separate from the hardened criminals. Several questions gather around this one. Mr. Quinlan, how is your message of more constructive and humane interaction between staff and inmates being communicated to the grassroots correctional worker? Thank you, Michael Cook, Chaplain uh, Tara Hotte. Okay. Well, one of the, uh, the ways uh, that we do it is through uh, training and through uh, providing the, the, uh, the information that we want to convey through our basic training course at uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. Uh, we also provide uh, the message in many other forums. Any opportunity that I get to talk to staff, I generally uh, talk about uh, staff professionalism issues and, and things of that nature. And uh, so by taking advantage of all the training and other in, uh, interactions that I have and other uh, leaders in the Bureau have, we are trying to get that message uh, conveyed. How does our country compare with the rest of the world regarding incarceration and problems uh, of, the, of that nature? Well, there's a, a wide uh, uh, disparity uh, in some countries, the Scandinavian countries. The uh, prisons are very different than here in the United States. Uh, the uh, uh, Scandinavian uh, sentences are much shorter. The prisons are much uh, different in that uh, um, the prisoners spend uh, uh, a lot of time in the community and, and things of that nature. Our sentences tend to be longer in this country than in most uh, other uh, countries, particularly European countries. Uh, the, uh, uh, I think one of the uh, uh, avenues that the Chinese have utilized, uh, they have four times as many people and one-tenth of the number of people in prison in, in China, and one of the things that they have utilized is the, uh, is the interaction and the involvement of the community in a meaningful way in, in working to uh, fight crime and to deal with offenders uh, who are being released from, from confinement. Uh, just to re refer back to that article uh, that I referred to earlier, I noted that later on it said the U.S. already vies with the Soviet Union and South Africa for the highest incarceration rate per 100,000 population in the world. During the past decade, the rate has doubled. On an average day, 800,000 Americans are in prison or jail. Would, would you care to comment anything about what it is about our society that puts us so high on, on that list, shall we say? Well, I think that uh, from the standpoint of uh, you know, this, this country is, uh, offers a lot of opportunities for people. Uh, those people who are uh, anxious to partake in the uh, opportunities but are unable to 
obtain them through legal means are tempted by all sorts of uh, easy dollars through crime to, uh, to obtain them through illegal means. And I think that uh, uh, part of the problem is our uh, uh, desire to participate in the good life. And also I think there's a, a high number of people in this uh, society who are involved in making money off of drugs and that as a result of that uh, interest uh, our number of offenders is doubling almost every 10 years and I think that until we somehow uh, deal with the problem of, uh, of effectively ridding our society of drugs uh, I think we're going to continue to see more and more people in this country incarcerated. Another question from the audience. Please comment on the overall recidivism rate, its trend, and the average annual cost of imprisoning someone. Uh, okay. At the federal level, uh, approximately 40% of offenders released will, within three years, be back in prison. Approximately 40%. Hmm. The average cost of keeping an offender in a federal prison is about $14,000 per year. Now that varies depending on the type of institution that they're assigned to. At the low level, level one minimum security facilities, it can be as low as $7,000 per year. Whereas at the more secure facilities, such as the maximum uh, security penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, the cost is $26,000 per year. And the cost is directly related to the amount of hardware you need to keep and the number of staff uh, and the staff to inmate ratio in those different types of institutions. Another comment from the uh, audience. Many people say that halfway houses and other community-based facilities are destroying the fabric of the neighborhoods in which they are located. More rapes, theft, uh, etc. Would you care to comment? The experience uh, at the federal level uh, certainly does not bear that out. Uh, there um, are uh, uh, community halfway house uh, facilities in a number of communities uh, that have su uh, supported them and uh, maintained them for years without serious criminal involvement by the residents. Obviously, uh, these are people who will be, uh, halfway houses are designed to be uh, facilities for people who are getting out of prison within the next three or four months. These people are going to be back in society uh, in that period of time and it's the hope of the halfway house environment to give them that, that shot at uh, getting a job, getting reacclimated with the family, getting a place to live on their own before the sentence actually ends. So I think uh, they're, um, they're very important parts of, of the criminal justice and the corrections uh, uh, continuum of, of programs for offenders as we try to reintegrate them into society. Due to the length of the sentences being handed down, will there be a need for geriatric facilities? <laughs> That's a good question. Not only because of the length of sentences, I might point out, but also because of the aging of America. Uh, we are noticing, and as we look at the graphs, uh, we are going to have more and more prisoners uh, who will fit into the geriatric ca category. And so we are looking now for appropriate facilities to house those type of offenders. Before the program, you asked should your answers be short or long. I'd say they're very pointed, and we're getting through a lot of them and to, to our edification. Um, let me see.
Agency. One-third of inmates in Trenton State Prison in New Jersey have tested positive for AIDS or have succumbed to the disease due to the permissiveness of drugs in the prison. What can the public reasonably expect the prison staff to do to reverse this trend and to counter the profusion of drugs? Well, <clears throat> I had not heard that figure before for the Trenton State Prison, but at the federal level, we have dealt with uh, AIDS, I think, extremely effectively in, in, in a couple of areas. One, in terms of education of both staff and inmates of how the disease is transmitted and how high-risk activity will lead to infection. Uh, we have uh, also eliminated, I think, uh, the potential for hysteria on the part of uh, many who uh, would be uneducated about how the disease is transmitted. We've also taken some steps to ensure that uh, high-risk activity is, is not engaged in. Even before the AIDS issue was a problem, we had implemented urinalysis testing of inmates on a random basis in the federal prison system. Last year, we did 60,000 urinalysis tests of inmates. Less than 3.5% of them came back positive. Most of the positives were for marijuana. Uh, that uh, figure has shown a steady decline over the last several years because of very effective monitoring of uh, uh, the institutions for drug paraphernalia or uh, substances and also through the urinalysis program. I think that those kind of programs for drug usage are absolutely essential in prisons. Uh, there are enormous opportunities for prisoners. You wonder, how do they get these drugs? How can they possibly get them? They're in prison. Well. Uh, I would have uh, asked that same question not too many years ago before uh, I got as deeply involved as I am now. But uh, there are many ways that through visitors, through uh, opportunities that the inmates have of uh, uh, being, having some interaction with an outsider of any kind, in, in some cases, rarely, as a, a staff member who will uh, uh, sacrifice the, the uh, the uh, standards that we uh, hold so dear to us and, and will uh, we'll get involved with uh, bringing in drugs to an institution. So all of those things have to be dealt with and the most effective method we have found in dealing with it is through urinalysis surveillance. Now in terms of the AIDS issue, I would say that the, uh, the main uh, con concern obviously that people will have in prison on the transmission of AIDS is that uh, homosexual behavior will be uh, condoned or will, uh, will occur. Now, obviously, I'm not so naive to think that it doesn't occur, but for the most part, it is very low uh, in terms of the number of people in federal prisons who are involved in homosexual activity. In fact, there's a study that was completed in the early 80s indicated that the percentages were, uh, and this was a survey of prisoners who were about to leave prison who had no reason not to disclose the truth. It was anonymous, and they indicated uh, that a very small percentage, less than one a uh, tenth of one percent were involved in any kind of assaulted homosexual activity, and a, about uh, less than ten percent were involved in any kind of consensual homosexual activity during their incarceration. We also uh, have had, through our testing programs, uh, since June of 1987, about 40,000 of our prisoners have been tested for the HIV uh, AIDS virus antibodies, and the uh, percentage of those prisoners tested positive are about two and a half percent of those coming into our system and one and three quarters percent of those leaving our system. And uh, we also test those who come in every six months to see if they're converting from negative to positive. And we're very pleased up till now, knock on wood, 
that that zero conversion rate is extremely low. It's non-existent beyond the six-month point. So the, and the, the zero conversions that occur in the six month, first six months are believed uh, by the medical experts to have occurred, the infection occurred prior to incarceration. It takes about six or up to 12 months actually to be to the, for the antibodies to develop in the bloodstream. A number of questions, both from this audience and the radio audience, gather around the question of, uh, do inmates work? Uh, are they, uh, do they receive vocational training? Uh, I'll stop there, and then there are a couple of ancillaries. Okay, fine. In terms of do inmates work, absolutely. In the federal prison system, virtually every prisoner, out of 45,000 federal prisoners, virtually all of them work. Uh, with the exception of those who are medically disabled. And one of the ma major programs that you have in institutions, and particularly in overcrowded institutions, is work. And it's meaningful work in most cases. And the work primarily is in the area of federal prison industries, a nonprofit government corporation that operates factories in, num in a number of our facilities. And those factories uh, employ about 14,000 federal inmates and they make a variety of different products, and they can only sell those products to the federal government. And last year, the sales uh, to the federal government exceeded $350 million, a substantial sum uh, which, which enabled the prisoners to be paid up to $1.10 per hour. They also uh, allowed the, uh, uh, the profits to be uh, used to pay those inmates who don't work in federal prison industries, but who let's say, work in food service or in the landscape detail, uh, those inmates received a small uh, token remuneration of about $35 a month uh, for their uh, efforts in those other, other jobs within the institution. Uh, those inmates are also offered the opportunity of educational programs. We mandate that inmates spend 90 days in school if they can't read at the eighth grade level. But beyond that, everything else is optional. And those optional programs represent a broad panoply of, of both vocational and, and educational programs, uh, classroom, college, and uh, other kinds of programs. So yes, we're very actively involved in vocational training mm -hmm. and work. A question, an ancillary question then uh, from the radio audience. Could the salaries that inmates make be given to their victims? Absolutely. I, uh, I think that's uh, something that we're going to be doing more and more of, quite honestly. Uh, one program that we have initiated uh, came from a suggestion of one of our wardens and was implemented on a national level about uh, two years ago, and that's the Inmate Financial Responsibility Program. That program exists uh, to uh, encourage inmates to repay their just debts uh, to society, and these would be court-imposed fines, court-imposed uh, 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 child support orders and other kinds of legally imposed debts. These debts are collected from inmates at the rate now at the federal level of one million dollars per month being collected from inmates, 60 percent of which is coming out of their wages, 40 percent is coming from outside resources. The, the hook that we use to get the prisoners to participate in this voluntary inmate uh, financial, uh, financial responsibility program is their access to programs that they are interested in. The best paying jobs in the institution, 
uh, community activities if they're otherwise eligible, uh, preferred housing, uh, things of that nature are tied to their participation in financial responsibility. And I think that, uh, that society has the right to expect that prisoners who can afford to uh, not only pay their just debts, but they also uh, pay restitution and other kinds of uh, uh, payments to uh, society. Also uh, a follow-up, is there a victim offender reconciliation program in the federal system? If so, please explain, if not, why? Is there a, uh, yes. is there a victim offender reconciliation okay. program, getting the victim and the perpetrator together okay, we in had some their, way? Their, their Congress enacted a, a law a couple of years ago which uh, gives to the victims of federal crimes the right to have access to parole hearings and other kinds of decisions regarding release of federal offenders. Uh, we uh, are very conscious of the uh, victims' rights uh, to uh, have that kind of information, and we encourage victims to work with our staff to establish the, uh, the necessary uh, uh, level of interest that the victim might have in, the, in participating in those kind of uh, uh, parole hearings and what have you. We have just recently uh, uh, established in our Washington office uh, an, an office of victim assistance because we are sensitive to this issue. Next question, what proof is there that lengthening sentences, abolishing parole, reducing good time credits, and more confinement will reduce the crime rate or criminality? Uh, if uh, someone drew the inference uh, that those are all uh, related, uh, please excuse me, but the, the inference or the, uh, the point I was trying to make is that the sentencing guidelines uh, were established to eliminate disparity in federal sentencing. They were not established to lengthen sentences, although in certain crimes the guidelines will have the effect of lengthening, lengthening the sentences. The theory of guidelines is that the court, rather than a paroling authority or a, another body in, in, in existence in the, in the correctional system, the court has the responsibility to set the term that the prisoner is going to serve. And so the, the commission has established guidelines that allow the court to decide what the appropriate length of sentence is. And uh, that program was instituted in November of 1987 and is currently pending on its constitutionality before the U.S. Supreme Court. How do you feel about the Japanese penal methods? I think that there are some benefits uh, to uh, certainly uh, uh, the Japanese system, which is, is again probably similar to the Chinese system, uh, a lot less frills uh, than we typically find uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the American prison systems. Uh, our systems, of course, reflect society. Uh, the courts have told us a lot uh, about what we are to expect in terms of uh, uh, prison conditions in mm -hmm. this country. One of the things that we are doing in the, in, in the United States to uh, move towards some of the things that the Japanese are, are doing uh, are the establishment of boot camps, which are facilities for first offenders generally who can uh, serve a 90 or 120 day sentence in a very intense disciplined environment where they would uh, do things similar to what a recruit would do, an army recruit would do in boot camp. And those programs for first offenders seem to be having a positive impact and it saves a great deal of resources if we can, society can make its point in a shorter period of time. A good general question. What, am, what motivated you to pursue your career in corrections? A job. 
uh, an interest uh, in uh, uh, people issues and an interest in, uh, I was a lawyer as I uh, first joined the Federal Bureau of Prisons in 1971. I saw it as an opportunity to uh, have an impact on, on an area that I thought uh, uh, society uh, was uh, not as concerned about as I, as I was, and I thought that uh, I, could, I could make a difference. I quickly realized that I had very little of the information that I needed to make that decision and, and uh, started out um, in about 18 months later going to an institution and working at Leavenworth and, and, and learning more about prisons in about a year than I, I ever thought was possible. Uh, but uh, I was motivated by an interest to uh, uh, not only one serve the public but also serve society in a, in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I'd like to take the privilege of just reading something that's, that's been in my files for years and moves me every time I come across it under the caption, What Prison is Really Like. It reads in part as follows. In prison, time compresses as though it were under the same pressure as the prisoners. A month may seem like a day to a man who's been locked up for a long time and has more of the same to look forward to. Once he adjusts to the prison routine, he fights any changes in it for if the routine is broken, so is this spell that has been cast on time. Time will begin to drag until a new routine can be established, and he once again speeds toward his release date. Routine and the illusion of rapidly passing time that accompanies it is probably the only thing that keeps a man with an excessively long sentence from growing insane. Uh, I don't know whether that's accurate about what it's like in prison today or whether this describes a former circumstance. It gives one an awful lot of empathy for uh, what people in prison might be going through. It's hard for me to answer uh, your question. Uh, I, I think uh, that it probably is still true for many people today. Mm -hmm. uh, their way of doing time, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be for two years or 20 years, is to uh, basically uh, establish a very uh, uh, straight routine that they don't uh, vary from very much at all and they, uh, they find uh, inner peace and, and uh, tranquility from that kind of a, a routine and mm -hmm. I think when we do things as uh, institutional administrators that impact on that, on that routine, we do see uh, and do sense uh, that, that we have uh, kind of uh, upset the apple cart. So mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting uh, point which doesn't necessarily reflect, reflect poorly on the pr prison mm -hmm. conditions, but more on the, on the amount of, of uh, time that people uh, are incarcerated and the lack of any meaningful uh, ways for them to enjoy life as we, as free people, would enjoy life. Uh, we tend to think that if prisons have programs such as televisions and, and gymnasiums and uh, a softball diamond, that they are country clubs. And uh, um, that's, you know, I think article points out the, the critical difference. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the removal of, from society, the loss of freedom, the boredom, the absolute repetitive nature of nothing other than maybe an, an eight-hour job five days a week uh, leads one to this uh, need to kind of stabilize their life and put themselves in another world. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Quinlan, director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, uh, we thank you for coming and sharing. The time has gone quickly for the best of reasons. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.